For the most part, I grew up in church. Um, go with my parents when I was young, but due to some mental illness in my family, we quit going. My cousin was staying with us and he invited me to his church and I went with him. And honestly, it was probably a few people in the youth group that attracted me to continue to go. But probably when I was 17, the church started to go through a split. People that I love, people that had become my family, started backbiting each other. And so I almost quit at that point. And a friend of mine from one of the churches that several of the kids were now going to said, please don't give up on God, this isn't him. And so I started going to youth with him. And so you'd think everything was wonderful and great, but around that time, I don't know if it was within the church or if it was just in my circle, but I saw that same thing start to happen again where people were mean to each other, they were backbiting, you can't come here because of your shoes, you can't come here because of this, you're not welcome here, you're not welcome here. And really that's where my story started to change for the first time ever. I decided that people in the world were nicer than people in the church. And if they weren't, they had an excuse. So why was I gonna continue on? Um, I got involved in a bad relationship and I spent eight years there. Was able to get out of that and start taking back things that made me me, made me happy. I started to volunteer. I started to find myself again and ended up meeting my now husband, um, ended up starting a family, um, but I still had that big hole. I still had that big gaping hole of, I, I knew something was missing. My husband and I would occasionally go to Hillcrest on Nine Mile and due to some job changes, we had to change daycare. We had to start looking for something that was close, that we felt comfortable with um, and that you know we can afford for the two kids. And so East Hill, at the time was the place to be. We only lived about five minutes away and so it was great. And there was something special about driving to this corner and it was kind of that, that internal voice with that prayer of like, I need, I need to get involved. And so my answer always to that was, God, I'll get involved, but you have to bring Hillcrest over here. We were sitting there one day in church together, my, my daughter and I, when they started talking about the potential of the, the merger with Hillcrest. Instantly I got nervous, like, wait, what? This is, nobody knew this internal battle, this my way of dismissing God in a sense to say, if you'll do this, if you'll bring Hillcrest over here, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. But I hid, I didn't come. I didn't want to come, I didn't want to be here, but this war of having to walk in the doors every single day um, was going on inside and knowing that I, I told God, if you do this for me, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. Um, and so I remember exactly where I was the first time I came after the merger had taken place because it finally felt right. So it felt like home and it felt right. And I remember crying probably the whole service um, and then running away as soon as it was, <laughs> as soon as it was done and going home and just being in awe of the fact that God loved me enough that he was willing to make something that I thought I was asking for that was impossible happen. 
And so that evening I sat at my computer and I boohooed like a baby some more and I wrote an email to David Wiggins and basically told my story. And it was shortly after that that Jordan and David had reached out and um, I began to get plugged in and I, and I made this commitment to God and I promised him that if he would do this for me that I would get involved and I would become the person that he had designed and made me to, do, to be and that I would follow his calling. And I really haven't looked back since. Well, thank you, Lori. What a wonderful testimony. We have come to know and love her very much, and she's a regular singing over at our Spanish Trail campus, maybe even today. And I'm just very excited to be able to stand before you today and say that four years ago, this very Sunday, I preached for the very first time over what is now Spanish Trail Campus of Hillcrest Baptist Church. Four years have flown by, haven't they? That's hard to believe, but what a wonderful ride. Some of the greatest people I know attend that campus over at Spanish Trail. Many of them have become and are dear friends of mine and Judy's. And in fact, we look forward to being with you all at Spanish Trail this time next Sunday, and we're going to celebrate in person together. But until then, we just want to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and say thank you to him for the goodness that he's done by allowing us here in Pensacola to be one church in two locations. What a wonderful privilege. What a great responsibility. And we believe the best is yet to come. Amen. Let's put our hands together and just celebrate all that God has done. God bless you all over at the Spanish Trail campus today. Well, as we open our Bibles this morning, once again, to Acts chapter 17, we welcome everybody into both houses this morning and to wherever you may be worshiping with us in our online community. We're in the midst of a series of Paul's missionary journeys, a series that we're calling Sent, and that's what we've been, called by God to be disciples, called by God to follow Jesus Christ, and then called by God to go. Wherever that particular place is, be it our neighborhood, our community, our region, our state, our city, or even somewhere around the world. And the Apostle Paul is now in the midst of his second missionary journey, this very exciting journey to Macedonia and Greece and uh, what we call modern Europe. Actually, the gospel has gone for the first time into Europe. And this morning, as we pick up once again in Acts chapter 17, we find Paul still in the great city of Athens, the historic Athens, the birthplace, the cradle of Western democracy, a city of great sophistication, culture, art, learning, government, you name it. So much of our history in the Western world can be traced back to what has happened in Athens over the centuries, even the millennia. And Paul has gone there, having been sent there after a time of persecution by his missionary team. They get him out of Macedonia where things have gotten really rough, sent him on a ship by himself to Athens where he's ostensibly to get a little bit of R&R as he waits on Silas and Timothy <clears throat> to join him there. Paul meanders about the city of Athens and he cannot help himself. The last thing he wants to do is to put his feet up at the Areopagus Hilton, and he doesn't do that. Instead, he meanders and he preaches and teaches the gospel to anybody that's willing to stop and listen. 
That, of course, uh, attracted some attention. And the last time we were together, we saw how the people who were listening to Paul just couldn't, they didn't have a clue. They couldn't figure out what he was saying. They referred to him as a babbler. Uh, they couldn't put two and two together. They thought he was introducing foreign divinities, namely Jesus and his female consort, Anastasis, or resurrection, because he was preaching Jesus and resurrection. And so because this was an introduction of new gods, they thought it best to take him before what amounts to the Supreme Court of Athens, a group called the Areopagus. This was a group that oversaw the government affairs of Athens. They oversaw the civil, cultural, legal, and religious affairs of the city. The Areopagus took their name from the place that they historically met, a rocky hill just to the northwest of the Acropolis where the Parthenon was, a place called the Areospagus, the hill of Ares or Mars Hill as the Romans would call it. And there, Paul gives a defense before the most important people in this very important city. He gives a defense to the Supreme Court of Athens of much of what he'd been sharing in the Agora, the marketplace there in Athens. Now, I want you to remember that as best we can tell, the Apostle Paul was the only human being alive in the city of Athens who was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who's the only person in Athens with a Christian worldview, and yet he doesn't see that as a problem. He sees that as an opportunity. And as he meanders about in this city that's literally covered over by idolatry, he was moved in his spirit because he saw and he sensed how lost this important city really was. And now he finds himself given an audience with the most important people in the entire city of Athens, people who knew nothing at all about the Lord Jesus Christ, people who had never even heard of the name of Jesus Christ. What an opportunity given to Paul. Reminds me of the story, college football season got kicked off, as many of you know, this past weekend. And it reminds me of a story about a young man that walked on to play defensive line at the University of Georgia back in the late 1980s. He'd never played football before in his life, but he had two things, three things really that you couldn't teach. He had size, he had speed, and he had enthusiasm. Amen. And so Vince Dooley, who was the coach of the University of Georgia at the time, gave him an opportunity to walk on. His name was Richard Tarditz, and the reason that he'd never played football before is because he didn't know anything about it. He wasn't an American, he was French. He grew up playing rugby, and that's about as far as his knowledge went, but he needed scholarship money. So he walked onto the team, making the team, and by the end of his career, he became the all-time leader in quarterback sacks in the history of Georgia football, a record that stood until about 2005. Vince Dooley said one time, I just love this kid. But he was the first young man in my history as a coach that I literally had to sit down from day one and say, now, Richard, this is a football. <laughs> and that's kind of what the Apostle Paul's having to do there in Athens. He's having to make an introduction about God to people who had every kind of God around them but had no concept of the one true 
and living God. On that day in Athens, 1968 years ago, Paul had the opportunity to say to this group, old men of Athens, this is the unknown God. Luke's going to give us a summary of this sermon. If you read this sermon out loud, it only takes you about two minutes. Don't you dare think this is the whole sermon. There's no such thing as a two-minute sermon. So Luke gives us a summary of what probably consumed two or three hours there that day on Mars Hill. Verse 22, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, in the midst of the men called the Areopagus, the Supreme Court said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now let's just stop right there for a moment because I think it's interesting as we go through this scripture, one of the things that you will not find the Apostle Paul doing is referencing scripture. This is the second of Paul's major sermons as revealed by Luke in the book of Acts. The first takes place back in Acts chapter 13, and that was a synagogue sermon to a group of people that did know God. That was back in Pisidian Antioch. And Paul did begin with the scriptures there because his audience was well-versed in the scriptures, and Paul was making his mission in life then to help them to understand the full uh, import of the scripture about God and what it taught about what God was doing in Jesus Christ. And there he began his sermon, Men of Israel, and he began with the Bible. But here he begins his sermon, Men of Athens, people who knew nothing about the Old Testament scriptures, and he doesn't begin with the Bible. Instead, he begins with something that he saw, another point of reference, namely an altar that he'd seen in his comings and in his goings. And that altar was dedicated to the unknown God. Apparently, the Athenians were a little bit concerned about potentially ticking off a God that somehow they'd overlooked. There may be a God among all these great pantheon of gods, some 30,000 of them that we can identify today. Maybe there's one that we haven't come to recognize yet, and the last thing we want is to tick that God off by not paying him honor and giving him homage. And so what they did was they erected at least one, there was probably more, uh, pagan altars dedicated to a God that they had not yet been introduced to. And they would offer sacrifices on that altar in order to placate that God so that he wouldn't somehow come and judge them because of their ignorance. Well, Paul sees that, and he knows that they are ignorant, and he takes advantage of it, giving them a wonderful, bold declaration about the one God they didn't know, but the one God that they had to know, the true and the living God, the only God who they indeed had missed and overlooked. Verse 23, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And with that, he paints a picture. He paints a portrait of the one true God in four dimensions. Let me ask and answer the question this morning for all of us. Who is this unknown God? Well, first of all, you can know that he's God the creator. He's God the creator. Notice verse 24, the God who made the world 
and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Now remember, Paul is in a city, he's literally surrounded by temples. A temple to Aphrodite, there was a temple to Poseidon, there was a temple obviously to Athena, more than one. There was a temple to Asclepius. There were all kinds of temples built in that city and he makes it very clear. You may be able to put a statue inside that temple and go and lay your eyes on it, but I'm about to declare the one true God, this unknown God that you're still groping for and he's a God that will not fit in any house made by human hands. In fact, what Paul does here is he begins with creation, what God has done in creation, which makes perfect sense to me because remember, what is the first element of a Christian worldview? You have to believe that God is, that God is. That's where a Christian worldview begins, that there is a God, one God, and beside him is none other. That's the first element in a Christian worldview and the fundamental way that you know that God is is by an observation of what God has made, what God has done in creation. And so Paul begins by explaining that this unknown God was indeed the Lord of heaven and earth, a God who'd made the world, a God who'd made everything in it. He was a God who had literally left his autograph everywhere you looked around you which, of course, is the consistent theme of the Bible. You really can't believe in the one true God apart from understanding what God has done in creation. And that's why it's declared so forcefully all throughout the Bible. The prophets, for example, declare it very forcefully. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The what? The creator of the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah chapter 40. One book right after that, you've got the great prophet Jeremiah who says, Ah, Lord God. We used to sing this when I was growing up years ago. Ah, Lord God, it is you who's made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Those are just two obvious examples from the Bible about how God has, from the beginning of time, been perceived by those who have known him as the creator of everything that is. And those today who deny the creator God, and many of you people will know that, we live in a sea of Darwinian evolutionary embrace, and those who would deny the creator God, can I say it this morning, they do that, not because the evidence is not there, but because they choose not to believe. Max Lucado says that creation is God's first missionary. The heavens declare the glory of God. We call that general revelation, and it's why nobody is ever going to be able to stand in the presence of God when this life is over and claim ignorance before a holy God. This is why Paul says all men are without what? excuse. Why? Because we have, even if we don't know Jesus, we have enough of the general revelation of God in creation all around us to know that God is and to sense that we need to seek after God and that this creator God is worthy of worship and worthy of our adoration. And that's why you'll never be able to claim ignorance in the presence of God. Even an ignorance of the Bible or an ignorance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ is no excuse before God because God has not left himself without a witness. Romans 1.20, for ever since the world was created, 
People have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. May I say it this morning, of all the philosophies of Athens, Epicurean, Stoic, Aristotelian, Socratic, Platonic, you name it, none of those philosophies can compete with what Paul knew to be absolute truth in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. So if you want to know the unknown God, just look around you. He's left his autograph everywhere, and Paul makes sure these great Athenian sophisticates knew it. He is God the creator. But secondly, Paul goes on to amplify that. He is also God the sustainer. Verse 25, the God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, what Paul does right there is he gives testimony to the all-sufficiency, the self-sufficiency of God. So, God is a God who created everything that is, and he created it out of nothing. He didn't make it out of preexistent materials. He created it, the theologians say, ex nihilo, out of nothing, and only God can do that. Only God can take nothing and turn it into something. Amen. But not only has God created everything out of nothing, here's the thing about God. God needs nothing. You ever known anybody that's kind of strutted around in their spirituality so that they almost communicated that God would stop breathing if something ever happened to them? No, I hate to burst any bubbles this morning, but God does not need you. God doesn't need me. In fact, God doesn't need anything. God is self-sustaining, self-sufficient, simply in who he is. In fact, is that not evident in his very name, the name by which he identified himself to Moses? Now, think about Moses. When Moses went to God in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was very insufficient. One excuse right after another why he couldn't do what God was calling him to do. And so, to this man who knew himself to be insufficient apart from God, God introduces himself as someone who is totally and completely self-sufficient, and the name that he gives himself indicates that, I am. Just I am. I was, I am, I am to be, and I don't need your help in any way, shape, or form. God doesn't need a thing from you, me, and anybody else. Totally self-reliant, totally independent. God needs no food. God needs no oxygen. God needs no water. God needs no gravity. On the other hand, all of us need all of those things or we die. We're dependent upon God to give us everything we need or we're in a world of hurt. Whether we acknowledge it or not, there is no such thing as a self-made man, no such thing as a self-made woman. You are totally and completely dependent on God for support, for existence, even for your very life, for every breath, and for every need. So contrary to the teaching of those Epicureans and Stoics who didn't believe that, they didn't believe that about God. Paul presents God as both creator 
and sustainer, not remote, but deeply involved in the life of every person, deeply involved in sustaining the creation, deeply involved in sustaining human life. And he does that, of course, the Bible says, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the author of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. And Paul will say that in the first chapter of Colossians. Colossians 1.17, Christ is before all things. And in him all things, what? Say it out loud. Hold together. Now, I don't know how he does it, but Jesus is ruling on a throne. And as a part of his lordship, his rulership from that throne, he is literally holding everything in unity that God the Father has made. Jesus is that force, that personality that holds the created order together, that's responsible for the symmetry, the absolute precision of everything we know that is. And there is this tension in the universe. And I'm saying, if Jesus ever took his hands off of your life, Jesus ever takes his hand off of our solar system, Jesus ever takes his hand off of our galaxy, if he ever takes his hands off of our universe, all of it begins to unravel and all of it would come to nothing. And so as Paul paints this picture of the unknown God, he gives us this God who's the source of everything that we need to maintain life, the source of every good thing that we enjoy. Don't you love James 1.17? Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Somebody say amen. In fact, somebody say thank you, Jesus. Because everything you have and everything you are, every good gift comes from him. That was even true for those pagan Greeks who didn't even know God. Don't you know God was still good to them? Y'all have any lost neighbors who are blessed in this life and they don't even know their blessing comes from God? Sometimes that causes problems in our thinking. I'm not as blessed as my neighbor and I live to honor God. Well, you know what? God wants your neighbor to be saved and that's why he's being so good to them. God desires all men to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above to everybody, whether they know God or not. God causes it to rain on the just and on the unjust. God is the sustainer and the giver of all life, even those who don't yet acknowledge him. All of humanity owes everything we have and every good thing we enjoy to a single providential God who is both creator and sustainer. But that's not all Paul says. He goes on and amplifies further. The unknown God is creator. The unknown God is sustainer. Thirdly, the unknown God is ruler. And by that I mean God is in control. Would you say that out loud with me together? God is in control. Do you believe that this morning? Say, if you don't believe that, you'll live a hopeless life. Because the world's tough, world's hard, life's hard, life's unpredictable. You never know what a day's going to bring. And you have to remind yourself on those times when you as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ experience the rain that falls even on the just, that everything's still okay. 
because God's on his throne and he never moves one inch to the right or one inch to the left from it. God is in control. What Paul does here beginning in verse 26 is basically give a statement about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in human affairs. Again, something that would have caused the jaws of those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers to drop because they just didn't believe God knew anybody's name. They were almost deistic. You know, God just got everything started up and then he went and took a long nap. He didn't know who I am. He's not responsible for the good. He's not responsible for the bad. He's not even involved in my life at all. That's what they believed. And so Paul surprises them yet again by moving now from creation, the creation of the world, to humanity, the creation of man. And he addresses the critical question regarding humanity, where did we come from? He's already addressed where did the universe come from, where did the world come from, but where did we come from? It's like the question that the psalmist asked, what is man that thou art mindful of him. How do we measure up? How do we fit into this grand equation? Well, Paul answers that beginning in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. I love that statement. He is actually not far from each one of us. That's Paul taking an Epicurean and going, what you believe is wrong, he's not far away. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, idolatry is a waste of time. God can't fit in a statue of stone and he can't fit in a house made of stone. The point is, we're here and he wants to live in us because he's made us in his divine image. We're not here by accident. We are here by the creative hand of an almighty God. God made every single one of us. I read a tweet just yesterday put out by Planned Parenthood talking about the 99% safety rating of all abortion clinics in the United States. Absolutely not true. Two people are always involved in an abortion and one of them always dies. And that's why that's no good. Because that one that dies didn't get here by accident. He was intentionally, she was intentionally created in the very image of God. And we got here beginning with one man. Paul references that one man. He doesn't call him by name because it, didn't, it wouldn't have meant anything to these philosophers who'd never heard of Adam, but he references Adam for sure. And you remember, we're all the descendant of the first man and the first woman who were created by special creation of God, 
not by the natural laws of physics and physiology. God specially created them, the first man from the dust of the ground, the woman from the substance of the side of the man. God created that first couple, breathing into their nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being created in the very image of God after the very likeness of God. And this is one non-negotiable, regardless of how you view the creation of life and the creation story and whatever, one thing I'm going to tell you is non-negotiable, and that is there has to be a first couple. The whole Bible falls apart if there's no Adam and there's no Eve. The, New Te- the theology of the New Testament collapses like a house of cards if there's no Adam and no Eve. The great theologian Francis Schaeffer said there are two things which are indispensable in a correct interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. One, that God was the author of creation, and two, that the first humans, Adam and Eve, were real historical people. There's no wobble room for that. And from Adam, from that one man created at a specific point in time, the Bible says, as Paul testifies, God created every nation on earth. God determined the times of the Canaanites. God determined the times of the Amorites, of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians, of the Persians, of the Israelites. God was overseeing and attendant to all of that. And God created those people to be those people. If you're Jewish here this morning, God created you to be Jewish. If you're black this morning, God created you to be black. If you're white, God created you to be white. If you're American, God created you to be American. For these Greeks, God created them intentionally to be Greeks. The point is, there are no accidents with God. You're not an accident. You're here and you're you because of a personal loving God. And that's why you should never despise who you are as a person. You should be very thankful for who you are because God made you on purpose just the way you are. You're here because of a loving, personal God who not only rules the entire universe from his throne, he made you to be you. Now, Paul saying that God is responsible for all of these people groups and for all of these powerful forces in the world, that's not to say that God's responsible for evil. Or that God's responsible for sin. He's not responsible for that. God's not responsible because Joseph Stalin killed 20 million of his own countrymen. He's not responsible for the genocide of Hitler. He's not responsible for the terrorism of an Osama bin Laden. And God's not responsible for your sin either. But what Paul's saying here is that even in the face of all of that mess that comes as a result of the brokenness of the world by sin... God is still on his throne, and God is still in control, and God is at work bringing about his purposes, which one day will culminate in the return and the throne on earth of Jesus Christ as forever Savior and Lord. I know two people that are excited about the coming of Jesus Christ. If y'all are excited, put your hands together. If you're going to clap, let's clap. So ever since the beginning of time, God has used nations and people groups and empires. He's doing all of that to set the stage for what's going to happen at the end of time. We look around at the world today and we see a world that seems out of control. 
Seems out of control to us. Let me remind you, God's superintending over all of it. God's in control of it. Seems out of control to us, but God's not out of control. The clock has been ticking since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God will come through right on time. He'll set everything that's wrong back to the right. And he'll do it when one day the trumpet blows and Jesus Christ comes again. So never forget, God's in control. He's active in the affairs of man. He's constantly at work to accomplish his purpose in the world. And he's constantly at work to accomplish his purpose in your life. That's what it means when Paul says here in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Let's say that together. Together. For in him we and, and have our being. What's interesting about that is that Paul's not quoting from the Bible. He's adding that to the Bible, which is what's interesting to me. He's quoting a pagan poet. In fact, he quotes pagan poets twice in this sermon. So get off my case when I quote the lyrics of Led Zeppelin in here from time to time, all right? If it makes a point that the Bible would support, it's okay to use modern analogy. Everybody with me? Say amen. In him we live and move and have our being. That's a point the Bible clearly supports. Even when the world seems to be totally chaotic, never forget the one true God still rules from his throne. He's working his plan for the end of the age. He's not distant. He's not far away, which means that he's a God you can know. He's made you. He knows you. And he's a God who wants you to know him. Y'all still with me? Say amen. He's God the creator, God the sustainer. This unknown God is God the ruler. It's important to know all of that because of the last thing, namely, he's also God the judge. So you got to get the first three because the reality is that he's a Lord who one day is going to judge the living and the dead. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to what? To repent. In other words, to turn from sin and to turn to him because, here's why you need to repent, here's why, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that would be Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, the God who creates is also the God who commands. And Paul wraps up his sermon by giving an ultimate commandment from God. And what God commands of all people is simply this. Write it down in your notes. Repentance. Repentance. You've got to turn away from the sin and self that controls your life. And then you have to turn to God You turn from sin, turn to God, and the reason that repentance is necessary is because of the certainty of the coming judgment. Now, let me just say, up to this point in all of human history, God's been incredibly patient with us. How many of you feel like God's been patient with you in your life? Amen? 
and you're thankful for it, aren't you? God's been magnificently patient with the world that he's created across the centuries. And that's what Paul means when he says that God, up to this point, God has overlooked our past ignorance. Now, that doesn't mean that God just winks at sin or God just somehow blows it off. But when Paul says that up to this point, God has overlooked these offenses, it just simply means that God is demonstrating patience by not judging us into hell instantly, which is what we deserve. The Bible says that in 2 Peter, God is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God hasn't taken judgment on us instantly. He's giving people time to hear the gospel, time to turn from sin. He's giving opportunity after opportunity for people to turn toward him and to know him as the one true God. But that doesn't mean judgment's not coming. Somebody said one time, just because God doesn't balance the books every day doesn't mean he isn't keeping a record. Judgment is coming for those who don't know God. Now, God's holy. He's going to judge sin. His holiness demands it. And that's why it's so important to recognize that, to confess Christ as Lord today, to be forgiven of your sin, because when you receive Christ as Lord and Savior today, the sin of your life is instantly judged today. God judges the sin of your life, but he judges it in the cross of Christ so that we're instantly forgiven And judgment no longer hangs over our heads, amen, because my judgment has been given to Christ. And that spares me for the judgment that is to come. Romans 8.1, do you remember it, Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are, see, the last part's a qualifier, and it's very important, no condemnation. The Greek word is krisis, we get our word crisis from it judgment a judgment is a crisis there is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus important qualifier are you have you repented of your sin turned to Christ for salvation if you have no condemnation now or forevermore for those who confess Christ and are born again but to refuse Christ means that God in his holiness will have to judge your sin later He can judge it today in Jesus, or he can judge it later in you. And that's why there's always an urgency when the gospel message is preached. But now or later, sin must be judged. Because this unknown God, a God that you can know, is a holy God. And judgment when it comes will be universal Paul tells the Athenians, God will judge the world. That doesn't leave anybody out. And secondly, it will be fair. God will judge the world with justice. The God who created you is the God who knows everything about you. And one day it'll be all laid bare, no hidden skeletons, no missing information. We must all give an account, every action, every word, to Christ to whom the Father has committed all judgment because of his resurrection from the dead. Now, that's the last phrase that Luke records Paul saying in this sermon. 
which means that the minute Paul <laughs> gave an allusion to the resurrection, the sermon was done. He lost his audience at that point. That's where they all went, Pah! because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Man, Greco-Roman thought that the body was terrible. You didn't want the body. So to have a body coming back from the dead, ah, he's a babbler, and we knew it. In fact, Luke tells us that there were three distinct responses. Verse 32, and we conclude. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some what? Mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this matter. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and what? Believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others, plural, with them. So we know that Dionysius was born again, and we know that Damaris was born again, and others, so there were at least two more, so we know he had a harvest of at least four. Amen. And maybe more than that. In fact, a lot of people read this and they say, man, alive, Paul had a tough day up there on the Areopagus. Excuse me, Dionysius was an Areopagite. You tell me that I'm going to be given an audience with the Supreme Court of the United States and I preach the gospel to them and one of those nine justices surrenders to faith in Christ and follows? I'm thinking I had a pretty good day. I just now have seen God do something that could change the culture forever long after I'm gone. And church tradition teaches that there was a church started there in Athens and that Dionysius became the first bishop of Athens. Somebody say amen. So good things happened that day. But most of the people refused because these concepts were so foreign. Judgment, repentance, resurrection. They'd never heard this kind of talk before. And so most of them walked away as lost as they were when they started. The same thing happens a lot of times, even at Hillcrest. Most of us are home folk at Hillcrest, but we got lots of people in here who don't know the Lord. I'm confident of that. In a crowd this big, are you kidding me? And many people will listen to a message like this today, and they'll respond the same way. Some will laugh, some will mock, some will procrastinate, some will say, well, I'll come back again. That wasn't too bad this morning. I'll wait for a better time. But then there'll be some, maybe even today, that'll hear God's voice. The Spirit of God will get through the clatter and they'll find forgiveness and they'll turn from their sin, surrender their life by turning to the crucified and risen Christ who alone can save. Best part about that is you find out that this unknown God is really a loving, tender, creating Heavenly Father who loves you, who made you, and who knows everything about you. And more than anything else, he wants to live in an everlasting relationship with you. He's a God who's close. He's a God who knows you. And thank God, he's a God you can know too. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen. amen.